This is the Emerging Women Podcast, where we become inspired to live and lead from the truth of who we are. We're creating a new paradigm for power that includes the feminine perspective because the world needs it. Hello and welcome, Acharya Shunya. Did I say that right? Perfectly. Thank you. Perfectly. I think I was an Indian. I was from India in my last life. I was in the Peace Corps in Nepal and my family called me Shanti. So I just like, I felt like, oh, that's my Indian name. (laughs) And I just like love the way um, Hindi is. And I don't know, I know you probably speak like six different languages, but um, I love the language. It has so much poetry in it. Just in the whole vibration of the sound. So, yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's a beautiful remembrance of your deeper roots. Oh. And and I feel like maybe I was an American in a past life. Oh. So it it because I feel so at home here and so plugged in to the issues here so I can so I feel like women like us can bring our deeper deeper memories and be part of this world family and do the work we need to do. I love that the world family. Yes. And the vibration of our names, um, holding something deeper. Thank you for that. Well, you are uh, already a quite established author, we're going to be talking about uh, Acharya's new book, which I am super excited about because it's got the energy that we need for women to rise and for us to heal and save and create a world um, that will thrive. And so the title of her book coming out uh, through Sounds True is Roar Like a Goddess, Every Woman's Guide to Becoming Unapologetically Powerful, Prosperous, and Peaceful. And Previously, she's the author of Sovereign Self, Claim Your Inner Joy and Freedom with the Empowering Wisdom of the Vedas, the Upanishads, and the Bhagavad Gita. So there is a, and she's has more publications. You can get to her website, and she, she has a podcast called Shadow to Self, which is what we're here to do as emerging women emerge is to come out from under into full view. And we actually can't go through that process without including and facing uh, and and reconciling with um, those things that are lurking beneath the surface that seem to pull us um, in, in different directions uh, unbeknownst to our conscious self. So that work, that shadow work in the emerging process is, absolutely essential um, to be in the world in a self-actualized way. So I'm glad that you don't shy away from that. And actually, Acharya, you do not shy away from much um, based on this book that um, that is really a call for the feminine and a call to all of us to really step into our power. So I'd like to just start there with what do you think is being asked of women and why now? I'm going to go back to some words you said about how I don't shy away from much. And I think I shy away from everything my shadow does. And my shadow, like the shadow of 
the collective feminine being on this planet wants to shy away, wants to hide, wants to pretend, just to survive, just to get by on this planet. Mm. Can we can we curtsy enough? Can we be humble enough? Can we just curl up and pretend that we're not taking up any room on this planet? So when I did my own shadow to self journey, it's myself that wrote this book. Mm. I put myself out there, you know, on the frying pan sizzling away. <laughs> and wow. so the work that I am doing, like taking that part of me that is that is ridiculously shy, ridiculously um, apologetic for its own learning curves and put it out there uh, on Times Square of this world through publishing. I guess the work I'm doing is it's time to have those conversations like you and I are having now. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel this, the Shakti rising as I talk to you mm-hmm. because you've been doing the work. And, and if we could have more such one-on-one collective gatherings that we women are beginning to facilitate, I think, I think we're going to all be roaring soon. Yeah. And why, why do you think now for the roar? Because right when, when we become more of ourselves, right. And, and spirituality, I mean, gosh, how many times have we been taught like the silence, the cave, the inner, the inner, the inner, but the roar is, is outer. And it sounds like this is a call to taking up more space in the world for specifically for women. Tell me more about that piece in terms yeah, the of classic Hindu spirituality, the Vedic spirituality that I represent yeah. and teach and embody is about that higher state of consciousness where we're not pushing our will on the world and we are we're, we're connecting with the divine will and that requires a more inward movement, rightly observed. And, and I did that and I'm, and I am there. But then being in the 21st century, I realized that if you're going to just do that, you can have your own private, private pina colada of happiness. <laughs> but you're not going to be able to really move out of your house, let alone leave your meditation cushion. Mm. It's not going to happen. And then it's not just about me being empowered in my personal life or family life, professional life. It's about if the if 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 my kind are seen and boxed and diminished in a certain way, I'm going to have to deal with that residue all the time. Mm-hmm. And I saw that happening even in my role as a bona fide leader of a 2,000-year-old spiritual tradition where my just being a woman was like, you know, one reason to say, well, let's see where the lineage goes now because it was safe in the hands of all these men. And now we have this first woman and let's see, you know, because she wears blue jeans too. So that's questionable. So I had to like take, go back to like, what is essential in the silence and inward tradition, which is unshakable. And it's in my book, Sovereign Self, because you become the master of your own senses, your own ego, your intellect, you have sovereignty within. 
Yeah. But then this dialogue doesn't end with sovereignty within. It has to go forward to become sovereign as a collective, to become sovereign as a gender, and to become sovereign despite any limitations that our divine collectivity has imposed upon us. Yeah. And what will that do for the world to have a feminine collective that is fully sovereign? I think it will help the men and the non-feminine collective a lot because uh, sometimes in a dynamics when one is a victim and the other an aggressor, um, I'm not talking about individuals, you know, I'm talking patterns. Um, if one, one, one party stops playing the victim and, and rises to its own power, it changes the paradigm for the whole mm. is what I would say. I'm not saying we're playing the victim, but we're not, we don't want to feed into it. We don't want yeah. to, we don't want to look away from it. We, we really want to bring up the narrative in our dialogue. And so I went back to what is familiar with me, to my own tradition, to my own stories, to my own mythology. And I was really fortunate to be raised by a roaring tigress woman, my mother. And though she lived only till my age 10, she apparently told me enough bedtime stories and enough private whispers to, to lodge something permanently bold and truthful and easy within me. And this book is an ode to her. Uh, Yeah. And she raised me and my sister in the 1960s of India, very patriarchal. Mm. I was fortunate that my guru, my my father, they were all progressive to the point where they didn't strangle me or marry me off, you know, or something. They allowed me to become, they allowed as in when I was a child and I needed their permission, they allowed me to become who I was meant to become. Yeah. And um, so I took all those advantages that I had coming from a more progressive, liberal, uh, fair minded, truly deeply spiritual, consciously evolved family. And then I looked at my culture around me that was still sleepwalking. And I saw how the mythology of the goddesses, which is really fierce, had been, uh, you know, had been stained with patriarchal sentiment. Oh. And one version of the goddess was being sold to us, the domesticated version, but not the version that leaves abusive relationships, not the version that walks out with her head held high, not the version like one Saraswati had reprimanded her own spouse, Brahma in Plumbic. So, you know, I was like, wait, who's going to talk about these stories? Yeah. <laughs> then how many goddesses up. are there? There's... Thousands, but I'm going to talk about three chief goddesses in my book, Durga, the goddess of self-determination, courage, and righteous rage, Mm -hmm. Lakshmi, the goddess of prosperity, dharma, and pleasure, and Saraswati, the goddess of wisdom, meditation, and the ultimate recognition of our true spiritual essence, the sovereign being. Yeah. Um, It's funny. I'm just getting... chills you talk about the shakti rising i just feel like uh that that they're here with us they're here with us everybody emerging women listening to this podcast <laughs> these goddesses are here and i want to i want to really hear um how each one of these starting with durga which is in the book you start with durga which is fabulous um but i just want to pause 
that there are thousands of goddesses. I mean, I want to honor that tradition that even though in popular culture, they've been, you know, uh, the, the domesticated version rose. But the fact is, like, there is more to be mined through this tradition. And you are really... Um, I just feel like there's an invitation for all of us to, if there is thousands of goddesses, there is going to be one that's going to be right for us in probably every moment or every phase of our lives. Thank you, Chantal. Thank you for bowing to the Vedas. There's more to be mined. I'm going to borrow those words of yours because the original Vedic old Hindu tradition is gender neutral. (laughs) And it not only has the divine masculine, thousands of them, divine feminine, but even it even celebrates divinity in transgender and mixed gender. It sure does. Binary gender celebrates. Body. It celebrates, celebrates. that. Yes. Celebrates sexuality. Celebrates yes. energy and power and those things that we we come to look at spirituality, especially in this country where we've taken the Buddhist, we've taken the groovy yoga, and it's all this. It's like the sort of the the denial version Mm -hmm. of that and yet so much in the vedics is embodied manifestation of spirituality it's very pro-life in fact it is said that when you're having an orgasm it's the goddess uh, kamakshi who's born within you and she enjoys the orgasm with you i mean it's 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 crazy making and i love it this divinity in everything in the corpse in the in the lovemaking, in the meditating yogi. So why should we box box it, and why not we bring it out? Why why have we boxed it? Uh, because Buddhism became really popular, mm-hmm. and and I think that was the turning point for the Indian culture too, because there was this one teacher, the Buddha, who 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 took the men away from their women, from their families, created sanghas celebrated celibacy and then it became a really really popular like off uh, offshoot and even a separation from mainstream vedic tradition Mm -hmm. and so and and then it's so glamorous you know it's like you over your senses it's like you denying yourself you sacrificing your lust your family for the god became um a larger than life pursuit. And I'm not saying that that's an offbeat path or a wrong path. I'm not saying that, but it can be a path for the curious few. It cannot be a prescription for the masses, but it did become a prescription for the masses. Yeah. And for, and when you compare Buddhism and the pro-life Hinduism, which is all about color and sexuality and religion, it just felt like, it just felt like this is more sophisticated. And then when all these traditions came to the West, the, you know, the original scholars who dipped into the Vedic tradition were the British and the German. And if you look historically at their antecedents, their their puritanical sensibilities were tickled by some parts of what they got from India. And so they really went heavy on, you know, denial and celibacy. But celibacy is not the Vedic way. Celibacy is recommended, but only to the exclusive few who are ready, or it's natural for them to be celibate. Now, not when you 
you know, you're in the middle of your life. Yeah. And, and if we didn't have these false impositions of celibacy, we wouldn't catch all the swamis and the popes and the priests with their pants down. We wouldn't. You know, it could be part of their life. All the Vedic sages were married or they had love interest. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you another celebrity moment for the Vedas. They are the one and the only ancient text, perhaps the oldest known to humankind, which have been authored not just by male sages, but by 27 female sages, literally authored by them. And they have written about their love, their romance. And I have a book coming up on that too on the feminine voice of the Vedas. That's the book that needs, I mean, all of these that books book are needs amazing. to come out. Yes. Yeah. And I'm just curious like this, we are going to get into Durga. We're almost there. I just need to like, so this, this idea of celibacy, um, you know, it's, it just reeks of the distrust of the feminine and the, mm-hmm. and like the feminine is so subtle, right? And yet it's so gross. It's in the physical, it's in the embodiment, like you say, the life. And I think in the masculine interpretation of, of spirituality, we overprivilege the version of consciousness that doesn't live in the body. And um, I think that, you know, what you're presenting here is a reinvention. Like consciousness is not stagnant. We are evolving and consciousness is evolving with us. And to me, that's why it's so critical that we reclaim the feminine in these ancient spiritual teachings, because we haven't even fully expressed the teachings. We've expressed one half of the teachings, and we don't even know the power of the spirituality until we claim that other half. Then we can see what it can do. We think we have the whole story, you know? And so I'm just, I just want to honor you for. That's a very astute point, though, because we don't have the whole story. We don't have the whole story. No, Mm -hmm. it's been thousands and thousands of years, and we only have half the story. (laughs) Gosh, that could be a show. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and just just to reiterate that you are living proof of the evolution of consciousness is what I would like to say. And that this idea that consciousness is this, and we're, we have to change to meet that. I just feel like what you're saying here is we're still unfolding and unpacking the wisdom that's been here for thousands of years. And here's another layer. I'm peeling this off. And I just, I just hope that both women and men are receptive to this because it is, the story is, has not been complete. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So Spirituality is evolving. Consciousness is evolving. It will evolve when we bring the feminine up in the equation of what does it mean to be a spiritual human being and an actualized human being and a living human being. And you are presenting in your book Durga as the first goddess. To, I mean, you you mentioned so many goddesses. I mean, there's just so many, but you you lead with Durga. And, you know, she's got the roar. She's full of power. Tell us why. Why are you leading with Durga? And how do you see her as this fire that could really catalyze this feminine rising? Lakshmi comes second because she represents pleasure. And Saraswati comes last for wisdom. And it's a typical, another typical manipulated way is to only put wisdom up front 
and to not make power important and do not make pleasure important. But to survive and to thrive in this universe, we need our power. And we need to figure out whether it's an unconscious power, conscious power, or even a super conscious power by connecting with a divine entity. And we need to own that power and not constantly prove it or beg for it or give it away or scatter it. Or, you know, we just need to live it like, like a beautiful daisy that's in its full blossom is powerful. You know, it's. It's like, it's, it's not apologetic for being powerful. And so I wanted to start my book with Durga and talk about power and power in sexuality, power in with boundaries that we need, maybe even with our in-laws or, you know, in, in very everyday sphere, we can bring in Durga's belief that power dwells within me. It's non-negotiable even if it has been snatched away from me due to past trauma or abuse, it's still whole and I can choose to flow it. And so we start out with Durga and it's really only when you're powerful, can you become then a bringer of pleasure, a cultivator of joy and happiness and prosperity in your life. And that's why I then take Durga's power into a full-fledged exploration of prosperity, pleasure, abundance, because these need the a, a personal and collective power intact underneath that. And because so many times women will, you know, they'll settle for less wages, they'll be okay with abusive relationships, they will, you know, they will push away their prosperity, their abundance, their pleasures. Why? because they don't have their power intact. That's why Durga was so important to me. And really it's when you've been pleasured, when your tummy is full, that's when you roll over and play. And, and that's also when your survival needs to be met, your pleasure needs have been met, that you're ready to ask the deeper questions. Who am I? And am I just someone who worships a distant goddess, a deity in some unknown heaven? Or can I really see her in every eye, the difficult eye and the loving eye and see that it is the goddess teaching me? Can I find that goddess within me through the churning between my shadow and myself? And that's why I conclude with Saraswati, but Durga starts it all. Yeah. Hello, lovely listeners. I want to pause for a moment here to make sure that you know how you can get even more access to this type of inspiration and support. Emerging Women has its own membership community where you get teachings from incredible female leaders and coaching support directly from me, as well as other brilliant members within the Emerging Women tribe every month. If you are ready to go deeper into your own leadership and emerging journey, head over to emergingwomen.com for a free trial of our membership community. We've truly designed it as a hub for women like you who want to create change in the world. Don't go it alone, sisters. Head over to emergingwomen.com forward slash membership and start your free trial today. Now, let's get back to our conversation. Beautiful. I, I love that. I want to unpack each and every one of those because power is, is God, it's, it's not so easy to just, I'm going to be powerful, right? So how have you in your life overcome or, or found a way to access that power and, and not just draw from it, but actually have it as a source within you? 
And that's where the archetype and the storytelling comes in useful. So as you saw in the manuscript that I shared with you that there are chapters that have stories in them of how the goddess behaved when she was dealing with patriarchy, clearly. And so believe it or not, we have a very ancient mythology where the goddess was sexually objectified, but she didn't become demure or silent or, you know, or walk away from the situation with the head held eye. She roared. And she, she said, yes, I'm her head off. <laughs> oh yeah. She said, yes, I'm beautiful. Yes, I'm awesome. Yeah. But I've not been born on this. I've not taken an avatar on this planet to please you. Mm. I've taken an avatar to kill you. And of course she drinks his blood. But yes. I'm not asking modern women to drink blood, but I'm definitely asking them to roar like we all did with the Me Too movement. Yep. But then, you know, it was a movement that came, but it was it came very late and it is still limited. Now there should be a I movement of who I am, the goddess movement, where we can take these stories of how did goddess behave and then channel that, create those images within me. So for example, one of the images is that the goddess rides her lion. It's a male lion. It represents like the instinct to dominate and she sits on top of it. Yeah, and you have a drawing. Did you draw those drawings? No, we're, we're working with a great illustrator, Ikabumi oh. Charles. He's a sacred illustrator. Yes. He has also illustrated. Wonderful drawings. Yeah, beautiful drawings. They are still in process. Mm. And he also illustrated Sally Kempton's book. So he's just oh, an yeah. amazing uh, you know, sacred artists, you're having fun developing it. And so I imagine myself going to school, meeting a bully, riding my lion. I'm not going to be dominated. I'm going to dominate the instincts that want to dominate me. That's the image I get. If I'm nervous to show up in the world, to write this book, to speak my truth, I just have to take a moment and I become the Durga on the lion. I literally have to use my imagination to then the, to then spark my memory that I may be uncomfortable now, but in reality, deep within me, myself is one with the goddess. That helps. And it just then gradually becomes a habit. Yes. Yeah. And do you have, um, I, I love the stories and I love that imagery in the book. Uh, the illustrations are so helpful um, because you can just kind of, um, I don't know if they're, and they're right now, I, I saw they're black and white and they're so powerful. There's something about that that I love. I don't know if you're going to end up making them in color, but they're just, they stand on their own. And so, but I, I'm curious because a lot of, there's some real constraints, uh, especially with women uh, globally, systemic and, and uh, patriarchal and domestic constraints on their freedom and, and on our freedom. And yet there's also the internal constraints that somehow we limit our own power within. And, and you may be in a harmonious relationship or you may, you know, but we're capping our our, our feeling of, of power because we've been taught. And I know what you're saying is knowing Durga's story and reading the stories in the book will help us know that there's another version of that. But I'm curious how we can become powerful. How do you work with women who are 
sort of scared of their, I want to say their own shadow, but really they're scared of their own power. Yeah. And what will that look like? If I claim my power, I think my roar is going to be so big. I might like, like destroy the house. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we talk about the roar, not just being, not just being this, we don't talk about the modern goddess roaring as this loud, obnoxious person who has to make her presence felt. Sometimes you have to do that too. The roar is really owning your own voice. The roar is, I begin the prologue with like how we, we speak in cute voices and wispy voices and seductive voices and explanatory voices and content voices and cute voices and we're done. The roar for me represents that this is what this is what I really feel. So when we reclaim our true voice, at least to ourselves, at least we are willing to experience our true emotions. We're willing to we stop willing to paint the painting, you know, of our life like this vivid color of pink and happiness and romance, but really look at what's the raw deal. We start coming into our roar. And the story is only a beginning point. This book is really a deep book on psychological tools for women to, 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 to speak up, for example, or to even look at their quality of their contentment. Are they content or have they become contained? Oh, I love that. Have they, uh, uh, or even their generosity, Mm-hmm. Are they, you know, how women are taught to be generous and unconditionally giving and all yeah. that, which is fine. And I grew up on that too. And I am going to remain like that because that's a feminine nature yeah. to give, to be a harmonizer. And I'm proud to be that. But at the same time, through the writing of this book and the living of this knowledge, I also question my generosity where it becomes rescuing behavior, codependency, foolish giving. And I even quote from Bhagavad Gita and some other related Vedic scriptures, which talk about three kinds of generosity, the conscious, the unconscious, and the ridiculously stupid generosity. And so I, I weave in, I weave in from other Vedic resources to really bring forth a, a vivid teaching on how to be generous, but not to become but not to become lesser because of your trait, not to be taken for granted because yeah. of it. And what are the signs and symptoms of, for example, being generous in a goddess way versus being generous in a foolish way? Yes. Well, when you're generous in a foolish way, as you say, or in a stupid way, I really love the word stupid in that context. Thank you. You, you, you burn out and you're not going to be able to be generous. So if your goal is to be generous, then you've got to be smart about it or you'll have nothing left. And Chantal, you know, I don't, I don't write in my book from this high horse. Like I'm this growing woman and I knew it because I start with how I forgot my role that though my mother taught me to be a roaring woman and even at her deathbed, she was kind of wanted us to be powerful for her last message over her last days because she knew she was passing on. She was born with a broken heart, like a a, a damaged heart. So it was a congenital thing. But I forgot because I talk about uh, the feminine guilt being like a virus and it caught me in the 1970s and 80s of India. 
And so in my first marriage, that's all I did. That's all I did. I walked the script. Albeit a script of a more modern urban woman, but it was the same script that I found among my disciples worldwide, among my students worldwide. If they were women or people of other genders or people of, you know, uh, or they looked different because their skin was different, we all start operating from this pleasing, harmonizing behaviors. And so I had to like then look at my own self. I had to audit my own thoughts and my own inner permission. So how much of a peacemaker am I? And what is peace really? And can peace bypass my inner knowingness? Or is it just something that I put out fires outside? And so I think this book is beautiful because it brings in Vedic wisdom, goddess mythology, but it also brings in the, 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 the experiments of truth, experiments with truth by a truth teller, which is yes. me. Yes. Yeah. Let me ask you this. At what point did you get your roar back or did you say, this is not okay? Like what allowed you to start moving in that direction? And I'm asking this because I find that you can stay in the stuck place. And, and some of our audience members, I mean, we've there's collective trauma against the feminine and women, and there's some serious individual trauma. Serious. Serious. And so like what? And then some people come out of it. Like, what is that? When did you first realize, you know what? Like Glennon Doyle Melton in her book, um, Love Warrior, or, or maybe it was, I think it was Love Warrior. I can't remember if it was the one before that, where she said she was lying on the bathroom floor and that's was her like, okay, no moss, no more. And so I'm curious for you, when was that point that you knew that you were going to shift it? I don't think I've had that point. I think I'm shifting it even right now when I'm talking to you. All right. I think it's yeah. a lifelong process. I, I understand those moments when you're like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. So I've ha- I may have had, I've definitely, not me, I've definitely had those watershed moments where you're in a corner all by yourself and you've been nothing but a paragon of virtue and goodness and niceness. And you've been, you've been stabbed in the back and you've been hurt and you've been betrayed. And part of it is that you're, you're also a female. And so your responses are emotional, but your emotions are not validated. You're, you know, you're, it's, everything's gone up for the toss. I've had those moments for sure. Any human being has, but I don't think after that, I put on the cap of the roar and I just kept roaring because I kept forgetting. Mm. We keep forgetting to roar. Yes. And then, and that's why I wrote this book for myself and the whole humanity so that we don't forget to roar. And that's how I want more roaring women around me. I want to have this conversation that, you know, we, we don't forget many things in our life. Like we don't forget to brush our teeth, most of us. of us, because we've collectively learned the lesson that if you don't brush your teeth, you're going to have to have really difficult moments under the dental chair, probably. But we, we, we forget to roar. And so I want all the women who've never roared, who can barely whimper, who, who've roared, but have forgotten to roar, have been punished because they roared. Well, I want all of us to gather and practice our roaring again. Yeah. Oh, yes. 
I, I love that there's a, there's a yogic um, practice, the lion's breath. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I keep hearing, I keep seeing myself doing this as you're saying it. I, I know this is much more than that, but um, may we all be roaring. Uh, and now we, the world needs us to roar now more than ever. Oh my. So thank you for that passion. So now we move into, and we're just going to touch on these last two. Um, we're moving into, you said pleasure. You've also said orgasm, which I love. I love that we've said orgasm and now we're going to talk about pleasure. This is what getting real is all about, but yes, pleasure. Have we forgotten that that is of the three categories? That's the second category. And that's, you know, if we just use our roar to save the world again, aren't we just doing the same thing? But if we put our pleasure in there, then finally we can use our roar to create a world that where we thrive and that reflects back to us what we want. And is that okay? Yeah. Or is that selfish? That's what the goddess wants us to do. That's what the Vedas tell us. The Vedas made the pursuit of karma or pleasure an official goal of human existence. They gave four goals. They said, Artha, survival. You know, we all need to get a job, you know, get a roof on our head. And then they said, karma, pleasure. And it's only when these two are fulfilled. They also said, make sure you have dharma with you, like do it ethically. Go about pleasure, do it ethically. And finally, they said, even ethics is not enough. So so what? you're a holy person, you know, with lots and lots of ethics, big deal. Do you know yourself? Are you free within yourself? And then they put the last goal as mukti or moksha. How wise. And what we did was we started focusing only on dharma, maybe start nonprofits, do good things, or moksha, just meditate away, meditate away. (laughs) And we forgot all about arthakama and we put them in the lower category. And that we create a skewed humanity in our own spiritual world, like you said, half the conversation. And that's why we need goddess Lakshmi. And she's said to be golden in color. And it is said that if thousand moons, full moons are shining at the same time, that's her complexion. And her skin color is, she's been shown to be black, brown, uh, golden, red. Her skin color is different way, but her luminosity is like a thousand moons. And she's a goddess of pleasure. And I have a story about how she was enabling pleasure for a group of celestial beings in a mythological land called Swarga. But then she realized she was taken for granted. And do you know what she did? She walked away. She left. And she let them perish without pleasure. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And then when she returned, she found a new partner and Vishnu and became the world mother because in his eyes alone she saw love not greed so you know um, you are a giver of pleasure and you deserve pleasure and you cannot give pleasure if you don't receive pleasure if you don't open yourself up for pleasure and it took me 20 years to talk about things like pleasure and orgasm in the public space because of that a false version of 
even the Vedic spirituality, which is just about being cold-blooded and disembodied and only being in this, you know, um, floating consciousness, bodhisattva state. But uh, maybe 20 years, maybe 20 years, sure. But I've been working towards it, snapping away those chains. I live a life of pleasure and happiness and fulfillment. And I might say it becomes you. I, I hope people who are listening will jump on and just see the video because this woman is, you probably hear it, but she's so radiant. You were so radiant. Thank um, and thank you for putting a stake in the ground for pleasure. And you said something very interesting, which I want to just make sure that everybody has heard. And I And tell me if I got it right, but you actually can't give pleasure unless you learn to receive pleasure. Was that correct? Did I get 100%, that right? 100%. 100%. Pay attention, everybody. <laughs> That's a good reminder. And now back to the wisdom, back to Saraswati, back to... Um, which is a little bit of uh, the way that you're talking about it is back to sovereign self mm-hmm. and and really knowing who we are. And does that knowingness have a, an outward? Because you know, I'm an emergence. Emer- I want I want that extra piece where we come out from under. This is you know, emergence is so important to our audience that does have that component in it. And so I'd love for you to just say, how does Saraswati take um, the sovereign self to the wisdom that she learns about herself and represents to actually self-actualize beyond that internal experience of self? Yeah, and I have an emergence mythology story to share really quickly. She's a co-creator of this universe with her partner, Brahma. And each, you know, goddess is paired with a partner, masculine partner. And one time he he created a ritual in which the partner should be present, but she was out and about awakening women like you and me. So he decided to replace her with another goddess, like simply just replace one feminine body with another body and get on with the ritual. But she arrived just in the nick of time. And she realized that despite all the consciousness in the creator, Brahma, when it comes to, you know, some other men, some other males had recommended that let's just get on with the ritual. If she's not back home in time, let's just put a sister there, you know? So she felt replaceable. And we always see Saraswati as this silent diva playing celestial music. And she spoke up and she reprimanded Brahma. And she said, for the way you treated this woman, nobody will ever worship you. And you won't believe it. There are no temples of Brahma in India. There are temples of Shiva and Vishnu, the other Hindu gods, but not Brahma. You you will find one or two maximum in a huge country. And she then on led a life, though she still remained his partner. It was almost like a contractual marriage. She remained his partner in the co-creation of greater destinies. But we never hear again of Saraswati ever attending a baby shower in heaven with her partner or, you know, or doing anything. You know, we just hear of this woman being in the, in the, in the relationship to, to, the, to the extent that it suited her. But not being in the, in the relationship beyond what, didn't, what her heart didn't permit her. And I saw that as an emergence of, 
Saraswati as knowledge of who I am, to what degree will I participate in any relationship? When will I speak up to censor and when I will be in cold indifference and do my own thing? I feel like Saraswati is a huge role model for modern women today. Wonderful. Yes. I'm just taking you in right now. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. And we are at the end of time. So um, I would love for you to just give our audience, I think I gave you a little bit of an idea of our profile um, or just a call to women everywhere. What can we rise to? And um, what is your call for us so we can, we can follow and join the collective? And just be not afraid if you've lost your voice. It happened. Mm. we're not against men or people of other genders this is just about us reclaiming our own truth and um, the more you inform yourself maybe my book will help you and the more you find other roaring women even come back to this podcast you know you're just gonna find that in subtle ways not in not necessarily in loud screaming ways, but in subtle ways, something will shift within you. Why? Because that power already dwells within you. Mm. And it becomes strengthened the more you listen to her stories, the more you listen to people around you who have lived by that power, so argument it. And then you might find that the goddess is not very far away, but she is smiling inside you. Yeah. Mm. Thank you so much. Acharya, and such a pleasure to have you on. And we have all the links following up here. Is there any uh, special call you would like to point beyond? Um, the website is uh, acharyashunya.com, um, and that's A C H A R Y A S H U N Y A.com. And her foundation is the Awakened Self Foundation. And there you'll find lots of tools. The book is coming out or has come out. It's coming out September. September. It's available for pre-order. Mm-hmm. Pre-order the book. And then also, because I'm such an audiophile and you, you know, I love listening to spiritual teachers on audio because I feel like there's also a, a transmission. So do both. That will also be available. I understand. Yes, the Audible book is also coming out by Sounds True and the audiobook and also the Kindle edition. So, and the Audible book, yeah, maybe that's what I want to share is we had this out-of-the-box recording experience and the goddesses were present, just oh. like you and I experienced them. Yes. And I had my sound recording people like shed tears. They were both men and they kept crying through my recording. It was just such an experience for us mm. over a week. So yeah, and there's extra stuff in it where I where I was invited to go away from the script and speak just like I'm speaking now from my yes. heart. Yeah. Wonderful. Love it. Sounds true does such a good job with that. So okay, Acharya, thank you so much. Thank you, Shantan. Bye.